Welcome back to the Club Official Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick, and today we're joined by Katie Philo. She's the Senior Social Media Manager at Pitchfork, and she hosts a podcast called They Must Be Mad. So Katie, earlier today you mentioned a quote by Heath Ledger, and it goes something like this. Everyone you meet always asks if you have a career, are married, or own a house, as if life was some kind of grocery list. But nobody ever asks if you're happy. What does that mean to you? Yeah, it, it hits particularly hard, I think. Um, I think as I'm, I'm now, I'm about to turn 32 next month. And I think that when you hit your 30s, you, everyone starts kind of getting into different stages of their lives. And I'm, you know, acutely aware that some people, some of my friends are getting married, some people are having children. I have a twin brother and he's expecting a baby in the summer. And, you know, I'm still single living in New York. And I think that I I really like the fact that, you know, that this this quote ultimately highlights that we are so much more than all of these external variables and they are variables because everyone is incredibly different. And um I was I was kind of saying this to you before we started rolling, but I think whenever you meet someone for the first time, some one of the first things you ask anyone is, you know, their name and then what do you do? Um, as if that's one of the most defining characteristics of a person, but actually like who you are and what you care about and what excites you. Um, and like he said, are you happy? All those things are just so much more important, but I feel like society doesn't value them or place emphasis on them. And it's really difficult sometimes to see past that when I think you're living a very busy life in a city. And you know, I think the pandemic has definitely helped us reflect a bit more on that. You know, it's funny too. I've met a lot of people that on paper are supposed to be very impressive and some of the smartest and great lives and everything. And they're not nice to deal with one on one side, but they're also not happy themselves. I mean, they are almost, when you ask them their personality trait, they say their job, they say what they do for a living as if that encompasses everything of who they are. Yeah, I feel like we're so kind of preoccupied with building personal brands and ideas of ourselves rather than actually disconnecting from this version of ourselves that we curate. And there's there's an amazing book um, called Callings um, by the guy who started Story Corps. I don't know if you've heard of this, Um, but it's it's ultimately just like lots of stories of people who have found their so-called calling in life. And these are like lots of quite, you know, what could be seemingly mundane jobs but they are just so happy in what they're doing. And there, are, there was one who's like, a, they, they sit on a bridge all day and they just kind of, you know, put the bridge up and down every time someone comes comes by and their life is like governed by nature and when the, you know, when the sun comes up. And I just think that there are many ways to define success. And unfortunately, we put a lot of emphasis on career status and money and a lot of the things that we are told to that we should have. But I think trying to redefine what success means um, would be a really nice place to start. And um, I definitely think I'm a long way off from, from not being bound by those kind of you know expectations. But it's definitely something I grapple with a lot and think about a lot. And yeah, probably overthink, to be honest. <laughs> and what does success mean to most of your peers? Is it house, family, kids, career? Yeah, I, I think that it's... Um, I, I, I guess if you I, I think when you say when you say success I do think that most people immediately I think career springs to mind you know like climbing a ladder earning a certain salary getting to a certain position um, and you know I think if you were more holistic in your picture of success you'd probably then say you know meeting someone that you want to spend your life with getting married having children um, but I think the more I start thinking about success um, I, I, I feel like there's this very specific thing I'm, I'm seeking, which is this idea of there's a book called, uh, called the element by Ken Robinson. Um, and he describes the element as when your personal passion meets your, um, natural abilities. And that's when you kind of get into that kind of flow state, you know, when time just ceases to exist because you were just in your, you're in your element and you're doing something that you really love. And, I know that is a privilege to be able to do something you really love every day. But I think for me, I will know I've been successful when I, when I'm doing something that doesn't feel like work. And again, that is like a very privileged position to be in, but it's something I aspire to for sure. Andrew, especially his whole friend group is just starting their first jobs. So to them, I don't think they even (laughs) know. I, I look back at when I was 22 and 21 and I think, oh my God, he's in for a hell of a ride. 
especially in the first five years. And I, I also, I don't know of many people that look back at those years between 21 and 25 and say, I did it right. They mostly say, okay, I learned a shit ton. And I think I know yeah. exactly the steps I need to make moving forward. Yeah, you, you, you eliminate a lot of the things that you don't like through the process of doing. And I think one of the things that I found when I was getting out of university at 21, 22 was this like complete like paralysis of like just not knowing what to do. Because I think you know, a lot of the education system gets you into a position where you are very used to achieving certain things. You know, you do something and you achieve it and then you tick it off and then you're suddenly spat out into the world and you're like figuring out what, what to do. And there are many options obviously available and I, I just couldn't, I, 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 I didn't know what to do. So I honestly, I must have done, I, I was working in a supermarket after graduating, literally I got a, I got a first class honours from like a great university and then I was like literally just like scanning vegetables all day. And I, I didn't, because I didn't know what I wanted to do and then I was just kind of doing work experience and internships on the side. And in a year, I think I must have done at least 15 because I was like deliberating. And I think that had I known what I know now, obviously the beauty of hindsight is I think it's this idea of there's no right or wrong path. There is just a path and it doesn't really matter which one you take. You just pick one route and then you figure it out. And I think I was just desperately trying to pick the right route. And um, yeah, I do, I do. I feel like that's something that you learn that you get more confident in, in your ability to figure things out as you go. I, I might take two steps back really quick. I think you mentioned Ken Robinson. I actually went, I listened to him speak a number of years ago. Oh, did you? Um, I was really fortunate, actually, in Switzerland, out of all places, far away from the United States. Uh, he was speaking at like a conference about education. Uh, and it's so funny, too, because I mean, a big part of his, I guess, his whole spiel, and as you go to listen to his so many TED Talks, which are great to listen to, I think one of them, one of them is like Education Death Valley, is that we like our education system even now i don't know about in the uk but in the us it's like creating kids to be a cog in just another piece of a machine and we're taking away so much of that creativity aspect saying hey you should really look for the jobs in stem right now you should really look for the jobs in uh finance right now but we we underscore so many of these other disciplines that there's great jobs to make a life out of um, and even though they might not pay the highest, we still need those individuals. And they're still such a crucial part of uh, of our society. Yeah. And it, I think so much of it also comes down to their like the school's ability to awaken people to these other opportunities. And he talks a lot about the importance of mentors and how if if teachers and and kind of educational staff were trained in you know or were really kind of aware of the talents or able to spot things in children they can cultivate these talents and and in his book it's filled with lots of stories of I think mentors are really important in in really recognizing something in a child and then really supporting them in it and I think unfortunately the education system is kind of broken and it's like there's this hierarchy of subjects where it's like maths, English and science and then you know dance and art and media studies are all just seen as kind of softer subjects but they are just as important in the economy and yeah he made like he, he I think he he sadly died like last year and um, I just feel like yeah and his, his legacy his, he, his daughter's just published a book in his name like like finished his book um but I think his legacy oh you're right wow yeah oh I was so sad that day I feel like he's had such a profound impact now I'm sad today wow yeah (laughs) sorry to break that news to you (laughs) wow but his daughter's kind of continuing his work and I think that his TED talk is like I think the most viewed of all time or one of them and it's such a compelling case to transform the education system because I think that's like I read that close after graduating and it's obviously really aspirational and I would love to find my element, but I think recognizing that it might not happen just when you graduate, like he talks about a woman who, you know, writes like a Nobel prize winning novel in her seventies, you know, I think life is not linear and we may just suddenly strike upon it. And yeah, I think suddenly not, and not realize you've struck upon it. And I think we're all kind of often seeking this destination and this is like the cheesiest thing ever, but I do think being able to just kind of recognize like the journey is kind of what's getting you there and that yeah that just being okay with the process and like you said Patrick like eliminating the stuff 
that you don't like. <laughs> yeah, Peter Thiel, if you're aware of him, now is recognized as more of a radical figure uh, because of some of the things he's done recently. But he had a really good quote when he launched the Thiel Fellowship a few years back. And he basically said that the college education industry is the biggest bubble since the housing market. And me and Andrew talk about that all the time, how you see $60,000, $50,000 per year tuition for a communications degree that you'll spend $300,000 on on aggregate and you have to pay that off for the next 20 years of your life working a job in communication specifically. What is that going to net you? $50,000 a year? Maybe seventy in a big market? And, and for what? It's to start off, I, you, you learn more on the job. That's the thing. Like my my education, like I'm looking back, I'm extremely grateful that I'm going to a liberal arts school that makes me take classes in every single discipline. Uh, like one of my best friends is actually taking dance for men right now. Uh, and one of the least coordinated per- people I've ever seen in my life. But like, it's just like you learn more, you learn more about yourself. And regardless of where you go out, like, going out of college, like that first job, like I think to as Katie was saying is that stepping stone. And you find so many people that end up in jobs that aren't, aren't even in their discipline. Like I see one of my friends actually was a classics major, ended up going into what we were talking about earlier is investment banking with a classics major. Like they're not looking for, I think the hard skills as much as they're looking for certain soft skills. Cause they, if they see that you're hardworking and they see that you're driven, you can develop a leader anywhere. Um, I think. But take that with a grain of salt because Andrew, you do go to a school that's also known as the prep school of America. No, it's true. I'm listen, I was fortunate enough to go to boarding school growing up. I probably a nod to the British system. Uh, we went through like forms, third form, fourth form, fifth form, and all the way up, uh, which was quite funny, but like, <laughs> you know, it's, you, you surround like the whole way. Like, do I like, Back to Katie's point way earlier on. Do I even know what I want to do ten years from now? No. Uh, like I'm. It's just all part of like part of that process, and like kind of just discovering it all. Yeah. It's, so, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I'm like really envious of those people who just have that singular vision. You know, from when they're like thirteen, they just know that is their divine calling in life. But I think that's just very rare. And my friend said something to me the other day. It was like a, a new mantra that I love. I'm probably going to butcher it, but it was something like. Like I'm, you know, you're be be the river and just flow and don't like resist and don't go against it. And I think that's like so relevant. I feel like so much of my life I've tried to plan and strategize my career moves and like figure out, you know, like which steps going to get me to this next job and to the next position that I want. But sometimes some of the best things that can happen to you are just by total circumstance and just being aware of what's going on around you and meeting new people and being open. Um, and I think that then you can be surprised and it, it's kind of exciting in some ways to not know what the future is going to look like. Like, I think if I had just picked a career that is not going to change and that would be my life, I don't think I could, my personality type would enjoy that. So I don't know if you feel excited, Andrew, about graduating, but I think it's kind of fun to have the future unwritten. It's a double-edged sword on one side. It's like, oh, like you're ready to be done. But then on the other side, you're not really ready for that yeah. responsibility <laughs> that comes after college, so to speak. But it's, I know it's funny too, because we were talking about this even before we started the podcast is that so many like millennials now have four or five different jobs, if not more in their lifetime compared to previous generations that would basically live at a company for their entire, entire life and work their way up a ladder. So it's, it's that, like I guess that notion too, that where you end up originally is not where you're going to end up long-term. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's this whole idea of like a multi-hyphenate, which I don't think is like a particularly new concept, but, you know, obviously they've kind of codified it and created a name for it. And I think the idea of having multiple streams of income and, you know, multiple strings to your bow is just becoming very commonplace. You know, you can be five things. You don't just have to pick one track. And I think, you know, that's, it's kind of smart because then you're diversifying your ways to make money and kind of probably solidifying, you know, like more secure future because you have multiple ways to earn money. But it also just, I think, plays the idea that you can cater to many interests and you can twist and that your careers can twist and turn in ways that I think, I, I especially feel like my parents, they didn't put pressure on me, but I think they would have loved me to be a lawyer. You know, I think that 
the generational thing of like having a having a profession and having a career is is like is, there is a big gap and having them try and understand what we do is just like you know I think it, they don't really get what our jobs are it's fine and so true like if, if you're a lawyer you obviously know what you're going to do if you're going to med school you obviously know you're going to become a doctor and I remember a few years ago sitting around I'm like oh, I could see myself as a doctor and then you come to that realization if you want to do it, you really have to be committed. It's not the kind of thing that you can kind of just noodle your way through. And I think that just goes to show like when you have that passion or you have that driver, you know what you want to be. You see that so much like those people are so fortunate because they see it early on. Well, for me, it was always, how do you know? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's like, it's astonishing that I think when you're picking these subjects at 16, like how do you know that? Because I think you change so dramatically in your life. Um, I think a lot a lot of the time I do think it's the influence of like adults in your life and maybe those mentor figures and the things you've been exposed to must determine and maybe I think a lot of people have like very formative experiences and you know I think people like maybe actors and singers they they have they have a talent that they clearly recognize but there are probably thousands of people that have talent that don't ever you know strike upon you know career in those areas so it is kind of amazing that these people can have such conviction at such a young age because I was absolutely clueless. <laughs> when we, when I spoke to Chris Fox the other night, and this will be on a different podcast, I realized he was very talented because you have to be very talented to qualify for the Olympics when you're under 20 years old, still in your teen, teen years. But the amount of emphasis he put on the amount of hard work that he did was baffling. The talent gets you through the door but the hard work it takes you all the way i mean i barely, I barely have a discipline to go to the gym <laughs> yeah and hopefully you keep doing this podcast every day because i've realized how hard it is how much work it requires yeah i know we, we were talking about so i i produced two on the side outside of my day job and it's another job really like it's because you're, you're ultimately doing seven roles you know you're you're booking guests you're planning the questions you're editing you're recording you're marketing it and like i guess it's like the multi-hyphen thing <laughs> like you're, you're doing lots of jobs there's a common statistic that 70 to 90 percent of podcasts that are out there are two to three episode podcasts because people start it and then they never they know it's continue. it's so hard even for us now we're we have the next month and a half booked out full of guests so we should have one episode a week for the next for through the end of April, uh, may but after that we have to I, we have to sit down again and say, okay, who are we going to invite? Where are we going to take this? It's that like labor of love. Like what you, when you do it, like we talked about earlier, like you have your job and then you have your passion, which is almost another job in of itself. And the, the hope is that your day job doesn't rob you of your dream job at night that you're working towards. And there was there's always like that notion that if you have something you're passionate about, my dad always said to me, he goes, you can always make a living out of anything you're passionate about if you really work hard at it. Should you quit your day job right away and dive head on? Probably not the best idea unless you want to end up uh, feet first, but uh, head first, excuse me. But if you're truly passionate what you do when you're, when you're grinding away as you work your day job and then even when you're tired at night, that's when you put in the extra legwork to get ahead in where you, what you're really passionate about. Yeah, it's, it's like having a, like a, like a mistress. Like, you know, it's like a kind of like a fun fling. Like that's how someone's described it to me before. And I always felt that way with my podcast that was like, I always said the moment it became a chore for me and something I wasn't enjoying, I would just not do it. And I think if you put pressure on yourself to monetize it, it, it just like sucks the joy out of, out of doing it. And ultimately that's kind of why you're doing it. And that's how, when you look at people's trajectories and people that are successful in this space, they never started with the end goal they never they never thought like I'm sure Joe Rogan has controversial as he is never imagined that he would be making the amount of money he is when he started putting videos on YouTube and producing these podcasts in a really lo-fi way but I think just being part of the process and just doing it and enjoying it is kind of you know not really having that like pressure on the future oh yeah the second you come into it thinking I see an opportunity in the market because so much money is being flooded into podcasts that's when you fail exactly i think it's consistency it's i remember listening and again another one that i feel like i used to listen to a lot is tim ferris but that was just because it was an og podcast and someone i think he was giving someone advice on podcasting and it was when i was trying to start mine 
and his best his the best advice was just make it something that's manageable to produce because you're going to stop doing it if it's not manageable so it, like just the least amount of editing required you know the easiest setup and then and like you said if most people stop after three episodes you're already doing well if you get more than three episodes yep exactly and the same goes with writing and the same goes with anything like social media instagram for example I can't tell you how many people reached out in the past couple of years asking for tips on starting pages. And to today, I haven't seen a single one of those people in those pages still around. So did they, did they tell you they had started them and then? Oh yeah. And I would, I have this thing where I'm very curious. So I would stock their Instagrams once a month, once a week. Keeping track and on, the, on the students. Keeping track. Yeah. Because you know what? In reality, the only reason me and Andrew are here, the only reason me and Andrew are friends, the only reason you're here with us on this podcast is because when I was in college, I decided to read a Charles Bukowski book after a breakup. And I was like, oh, why don't I just post stuff on Instagram? And it was a rough first two years. And I just kept doing it after class, five minutes a day, pick a quote, post something and move on. And here we are. How long did it take to really start gathering momentum? Was it like that compounding effect where just suddenly you hit like a critical mass and then it accelerated? Yeah, I, I would say it when we hit 30,000 followers, this was about two years after I started, maybe even three. Uh, once 30 hit, 50 came right away. Wow. 100 came six months later. But we've taken breaks. That That's also something that hurt us. But also, I, I don't think we care about it too much. Like we've taken a month break and just not posted because what you'll notice along the road is that follower account doesn't matter as much. And even up to last month, I would post once every three to four days because you, you ask yourself for what? To, to make a number go up? Yeah. No. Sorry. It's even like even on the personal, right? like even on your personal Instagram, like. Like everyone goes through that that phase, like oh, I want to get a photo tonight for Instagram. You end up living that whole night for like for that photo. And I grew up in like a very close knit Italian family, and family photos are at every single event. And it's like you can't even enjoy somebody's birthday because you're posing for a photo every three minutes. And like I love everyone to death, but nobody's gonna care about these photos in a hundred years. Nobody's gonna look at them. Like live in the moment, enjoy now. And it's the same mentality with Instagram and. The sense, like, don't get us wrong. We like when we get a 20,000 liked liked post. I mean, it feels great. It's like, oh, i finally doing something right, understanding the following and the community that we have. But at the same time, it's like, if you're doing it for them, what are you doing for yourself? Yeah, and it's kind of like extrapolating, like, the motivation. Because I do think that the motivation you had when you started it is because these quotes, can, they, people connect with them and... I think they, you know, like we were saying, Instagram is a place, I think, where people come for inspiration and escape and connection. And I feel like you are doing something really, like, positive and it's a really positive force on, on the internet in a place where there can be lots of negative, like, forces. And But it's also, there's, like, a real element of self-care that comes with having to be on social media a lot because if you are having to post every day, there is a commitment to being on a platform and it's really difficult not to be influenced by the numbers and not see them. And like, I think it's, it's very healthy for you to recognize that it's important for your mental health to just take breaks and not worry about it. Do you guys know the app Be Real? A bunch of my friends use it. I hate it. Um, but essentially what it is, is a random time during the day, you'll get a notification on your phone and it will say it's time to be real. You go on the app, and it takes a picture of what's ever in front of you. And as soon as it takes that picture, it <laughs> reverses and takes a picture of you. Like, it doesn't give you time. Um, and if you choose to retake it, it tells everyone that you retook the photo so many times until you got the selfie you liked or vice versa. Does it post somewhere after? Yeah, post in the timeline. So you can, like, see everyone to be real of, like, what they're doing at that exact moment. So, like, people will be in the car. Some people will just be, like, laying in bed. Other people will be in class. Um and it's almost like like comical too because like everyone poses for like their Snapchat or for their Instagram and then you just get these random like, like a camera reverse <laughs> yeah. like selfie of like where like what somebody looks like at that moment. And I can't tell you like I downloaded the app. I used it for the first time. I think I went through like 30 iterations before I like approved the photo, but I posted it to my Be Real and it said like 30 attempts. So like it goes to show though like we like we live such curated lives and like what we do on Instagram is obviously curation, but 
like it's crazy how much we curate ourselves and like how much time that actually takes in every day of our life. And it, and it is dangerous because we're all comparing ourselves like to other people's highlights reels. And as much as we all remind ourselves of it, it's really difficult to actually believe it. Yeah. You know, you, like people are presenting versions of themselves and it's it's very disconcerting. You know, I think when you you can have an idea and a concept of how you believe someone is and is going to be based on their online persona and the brand that they have built for themselves, whatever they're, whatever they're trying to project. And then there's like the real life version of them. And I think, I, I guess like, I don't know if you grew up, like at what point social media entered your life, but I'm like so grateful that I remember a world before the internet. I grew up without really social media. I had MySpace at 14, but really, it, but Instagram just wasn't a thing. And, you know, and I, and I was even like, I went, I don't know if it's embarrassing to admit, but I went to Coachella when I was like 22 Instagram just didn't really, I mean, it existed, but it was barely a thing. And I'm just so glad I experienced the world before that. But I still don't know if it's like influenced me enough. I think I'm very aware of the the danger of being on it too much. And I try and set parameters. And especially with my job, I have to be on it all day. And it's not, it's not particularly healthy, but it's like up to you, I guess. And in the way that you're creating boundaries for yourself, like I think it's being really aware. Yeah, that must be horrible. That must be horrible always having to rely on because in your profession, you rely on metrics and data. So the more likes, the more follows, the more views, the better you're performing. Yeah. And it's, it's an odd thing where your job is so measurable like that, you know, like daily. Like I think you're, you know, you're getting kind of appraised by an audience and by these kind of engagement metrics. And, and that's the perils of any social media manager. I think like we were talking about this is that it, people I think sometimes forget there are people behind these posts like actually writing them and curating them and you can get some really disparaging and pretty nasty comments um and I just I don't know sometimes I just think it'd be nice to be able to reply to them and just be like oi like I'm a person by the way (laughs) see that's never a good idea because then they hit back harder and I I have the same thoughts too. Like if I see something done by a large company or a large account that I follow on Instagram and I think it's trash, I'll share it with my friends. I'll be like, look at this crap. Oh, would you comment on that? No, because I know from the perspective of the person that's creating it that they're in a no-win position. It's often because it's like the, they all rally around each other. And yeah, I think it's adding fuel to a fire ultimately by... I think that they... I, I do honestly think that sometimes I see comments where I think that people just assume that there's not people behind these posts. And then sometimes if you do something a bit knowing or you reply, they do realize there's someone there. And, and I, I do I do think there's an element of, um, you know, I hate that trope that, oh, it's like the intern running the social media because is it? it does. Dis- yeah, it, it like, it no, because it discredits, I think, what is an actual profession. And I think that it does require editorial judgment. Like I, I used to work on, you know, these accounts at the BBC that have like millions of followers. And when I first started doing it, I used to get so nervous to just post anything. Cause I was like, Oh, if there's a typo or if like, I, I do, I do something that could like embarrass the BBC. Like I, I've made, I have made some like serious screw ups in, in my time. Like I revealed, um, what was your biggest the biggest one is like I it, the, I was working on The Apprentice and I accidentally published the the, the finalists the day before the Oof, before, before, that's, yeah, that's so like a big one that 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 made the news that because was they air it the next day right so they were supposed yeah. to air it first yeah and it just basically the press got hold of it and it went everywhere and that was like a publishing error and this is the thing that like is very much on our shoulders is that human error does creep in when you're managing a lot of work like this and you know that that like high anxiety of like you know the mistakes you can make for brands is like terrifying I mean there's so many examples online I feel like once I did that I googled every other mistake that people have made for big brands to just soothe myself and make myself feel better it's like also refreshing like okay I'm very shallow so I always respond when somebody calls me out on my posts I am the first to slide up and say, actually, like somebody corrected me last week over a misquote and I went back and found the exact article that this thing was like pulled from and like, actually, no, here it is. And they said, sorry, but they didn't take down their comment. And I was like, what? So you like, you get to that point though, where it's like, it's, it's nice though to see the human behind the screen Yeah, I agree. Um, and have that and have that interaction because at the end of the day, like these brands are made up by the people that are running them. Like the brand's not a person in of in of itself. Like, and I think what we've seen now is 
and you were starting to hit on this, is that social media is now the new face of these brands. Before, like people were so invested in actual in-person events or the storefronts, but now people consume so much through social media. What they know about the brand is what they're seeing online. Yeah, and I think there is this like kind of real like fetishization of like authenticity. Like we all want everyone to be authentic, but actually like how do we even know what authentic is anymore? Like it's, it's impossible to know, but I think that people can smell like when a brand is doing something that is not particularly, um, you know, it's like, it's, it's not authentic or it's kind of, it doesn't feel quite in, in line with what you'd expect or if it feels like an ad, I think people want to see real stuff and you know, it is a way to kind of human, like basically humanize a brand. And I, I, I feel like the way that, a lot of social media can be run is in a very corporate-esque manner. And and I think that you can see that in engagement. They also. smell the bullshit. Exactly, exactly. The first thing I do whenever I go come across an Instagram page or even a Twitter page, I go to a post. So I look at how many followers they have. Let's say it's 2 million, for example. I go to the first post that I see, the most recent one. Let's say it's posted 12 hours ago. And I see, okay, they have a million or 2 million followers, but they're getting 600 or 2,000 likes on that post and four comments. Immediately in my head, I call bullshit. And and either I don't follow them, or if I do, I know there's a flag every single time I see their post, that's bullshit. And if I see another post that just pisses me off again, it makes me unfollow even more. Do you actively unfollow people? I I don't think I follow too many people. I think I've I've only followed over like a hundred people. Most of them are close friends from like yeah. the past. I rarely follow brands or news sources. I think like I there's like someone I follow and he always talks about how you should be really aware of your digital diet and like what you're consuming. And I think I often just have a clean up where I'll go through everyone I follow and like just remove or like unfollow things that I know I'm not really enjoying anymore. I had that last week. I I deleted my Instagram for like three months just to like kind of like enjoy life and like you can like lock it and makes you disappear. Yeah, I'll enjoy the moment. And I had some, I had a girl message me and say, why do you unfollow me? I was like, how, I was like, how do you know? She's like, I have an app that tracks who follows and unfollows me. Yeah. I was like, you have 1200 followers. So first off, it's not that big of a deal that one person unfollowed you. Like, you're not like some big time influencer that's going to like lose your contract deal. I was like, it's like at that point, it's like, I really don't want to follow you now. Cause if you're really like, it's not genuine. It's not even like a true, like friendship. If that's really what you're looking for is me to like your post when you post a picture. It's just, it's just so sad that like, because what, what happens on social media is ultimately a facade, you know, it isn't what matters. Like what matters more is like texting your friend and being like, hey, how are you doing? I haven't spoken to you for ages. Doesn't really matter if you do or don't follow each other or do or don't like each other's posts. It's all very well for me to say this, but I'm sure that I am guilty of falling into those traps too. But it's something you have to remind yourself is that nothing can replace genuine human interaction. And I'm sure you found that with your three months off Instagram. You're not, you don't have the tools to just check up on people and see what they're up to on stories you actually you actually have to contact them and ask how they're doing well that was my one of my terrible ideas through that hiatus too which was i don't recommend this is i got rid of my like didn't have my i still had it but it was in a drawer i got a flip phone um and it was like very humbling first off like when you go somewhere and you flip actually flip (laughs) open a phone just everybody look they're like, are you okay? It's like, I'm not okay. Yes, I probably am weird, but like, no, I'm okay. And but you don't realize, like, even texting, like, I had to call everybody or spend thirty minutes, like five times. Well, yeah, to thirty minutes, like hitting the actual phone button. So I was like, I'd be like calling people, and they go, "Why don't you just text me?" And I was like, I, you wouldn't get this message until like <laughs> midnight tonight. Like, if I would have sent it that way. But like, it's humbling too because you only spoke to people when you really had something to say or you truly cared. Like, I can't tell you how many texts I get a day that are just quick blurb messages that really don't have any substance behind them. Did you find yourself then making room in your life for other things? It's funny, too. Like, you almost you almost feel an emptiness because you're so used to when you have those time crutches of, let's say, just five minutes, you just sit there and scroll through your phone and suddenly that's gone. Yeah. And I played, like, I played, like, the Brick Breaker game for, like, the first, like, two weeks where, like, it would hit on my thing. I have the little phone pad. 
and it was fun, but I quickly grew old. Do you remember Snake on thirty three ten? Yeah, that was like the version. It's just I think it's like a habit. It's like a it's like a neural pathway, and it's like when I ever I delete Instagram, my thumb just goes there immediately. Like I'm just you just want that dopamine hit ultimately. Yeah, but and I would find myself like we'd be at dinner or something, and I would wouldn't have anything to do so i would look up to talk to people and everybody be on their phones i'd be like leaning over like oh like what are you looking at because i didn't have access to any of that stuff but you do miss a lot because everyone's in group chats everyone's in snap groups so it's it's almost impossible to truly disconnect because you do miss stuff i think that's like I, i remember going to this interesting talk where it was talking about the luxury of privacy if you're trying to be a public you know if you're trying to be known for whatever it is like be a writer or a musician you unfortunately do have to have social media a lot of the time. Like, don't have to, but it's going to really help elevate your your profile and grow your grow your kind of like following. And there are some noteworthy famous people who obviously just have nothing to do with social media and they don't need it. But that was like a bygone era, and I think it's like a necessary evil in some way. But it's like, to what extent do you have to do it? I'll speak devil's advocate on this topic. DiCaprio, for example, I think he has an Instagram, but it's run by his PR team, and they post stuff like "Save the Whales." So it's complete bullshit. I'm more interested in people that don't have Instagrams because I want to know it's what the hell they're curious. up to. Will, Will yeah. Smith had an Instagram thing where he came out with the big Instagram. He posts all the time and he does it across all the platforms. I could give a fuck. But I'm curious about DiCaprio because he's so private. Yeah. And the little peaks you get, they're so interesting. You have that with friends as well. Like, you know, there are some people who are more prolific than others. Yes. And when they do very rarely post, it's like, it's like wow. it means a lot more. Yeah, I post yeah, a story it's... once a month, maybe. And I see my engagement is crazy. So they're like, oh, look, he's when he has something to say. It's like, it's, you know, it's like when you're in a room, sometimes someone's just a listener. and But when they do talk, people really listen. People want to listen. So, people want to ask them yeah. questions. Yeah. I always, I always get a bit self-conscious about posting things on stories because I just think it's like the same concept we were saying about you know the idea of like if a tree falls in a forest and if no one's around to hear it like did it fall kind of thing and I think like that's the kind of thing with Instagram it's like if you don't put it on your story like did it really happen and I and I I hate that you do find yourself thinking in your head oh this would be a really good piece of content or this uh, this would this would be good or you know we can capture this but yeah, like, like trying to stop framing it in that way constantly is is a challenge. It, it all goes back to the idea that Andrew was mentioning. Does it matter to you as a person that other people see what you're doing? Or do you rather experience it on your own? Yeah, like intrinsic enjoyment versus extrinsic. Exactly. Me and Andrew went to Aruba about a month ago. He hosted us at his house there. And it was a bunch of people. I can't me- tell you the amount of times there were coordinated trips to have photos. By, with couples. Oh, I can't tell you the amount of times me and Andrew, for example, were at a club one night, but I couldn't get a conversation with the guy because every five seconds, hey, Andrew, come take a photo with us. Hey, let's do this. Let's take a photo. Let's take a photo. And may, maybe I'm a little bit older. I'm th- four years older, but that shouldn't be that big of a difference in age group no. where I was completely baffled that four years younger. Maybe it's because they don't have job. Like, again, we don't have job. Like, nobody's jobs yet too so like i feel like as soon as real life hits all right so i'll give you four years in four <laughs> years you'll, you'll start being as stoic and just down as me maybe maybe that's when you'll get there where the likes don't matter the instagram stories don't matter none of it matters it's all fake I, I could turn my phone off delete instagram and it doesn't exist so why are you putting so much pressure on it why are you thinking about it? Why are we having this hour-long Wait, pod- me, don't, 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 let's not aim this at me. But why, <laughs> you know, like we're having an hour-long conversation about Instagram, yeah. something that if I delete off my phone, it doesn't exist. It's so interesting that you also do run, you know, obviously a very successful Instagram account because it's like this dichotomy of like, you don't care too much on the platform. I guess on a personal level, maybe it's different versus cultivating a community that is maybe like less personal and less of your face. I think you do best when you don't care because then you put out what you want and you don't care how people react to it. And if it's good, it's good. And if it's not, it's not. Who cares? Yeah, I can't imagine what it must be like to be like a so-called influencer where you are so governed by your community and, you know, like the longevity of your career or like whatever you're trying to create is so, it's like fickle in many ways. And yeah, I, I, I couldn't, I, I, just, I think it's very brave. Like, I don't think I could read what people 
would say about me and I would probably be on Reddit reading what everyone says and it would just be terrible for yourself. At that point, the product that you create on social media is your life livelihood. Yeah. Right. For, with us, any of us, if a post doesn't do well, we still have our lives. We still have our jobs. Yeah. It's almost like you have the right level of disconnection. Whereas I think it's, it's kind of sad. I can't remember exactly who said this, but you know, when you ask little kids like what they want to be when they're older and when they say like an influencer, it's kind of like, I can't even believe that that is a career now. Not to shit talk on influencers, but. Yeah. And I think it's slowly moving towards OnlyFans nowadays. Oh God. Yes. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people that you wouldn't think doing OnlyFans and just average people. And you're like, oh, wow, you have a thousand people paying you every month to do photos. Could you could you earn a, a like a salary doing that? Six figures. Bags. Bags of just the Brink trucks are piling up. They're clogging the street. Listen, listen. But like I to me, I don't I don't see a problem with that. If you like your body, you're proud of who you are. Nothing to lose. Go for it. You know what I mean? Granted, do I think it's a smart financial choice to last you 30 or 40 years? Probably not because people probably won't be paying 40 years to see you. Um, but like to me, it's like, again, that goes back to our conversation. Like it's your life. If you want to do it, like you live with the decisions that you make, you live with the consequences. But at the end of the day, it is what it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and the platforms like I feel like are constantly evolving and changing and like that may not even exist in five years time. I feel like the only consistency here is going to be like constant change for our generation. It's like, it's, it's that like rush to be first. Like remember when, uh, was it clubhouse? Is that what it was called? Oh, yeah. Like the beginning of the pandemic, the audio. Yeah. yeah. It, it blew up. We did one, we did one and it had a bunch of people on, they go up and they go down. It's like, what sticks? And at this point, Unless some big conglomerate is going to throw a ton of money behind it, it's probably going to fizzle out and it's a sad reality. And then you just see this overlap like with Facebook now, Meta being part of Meta and Facebook and Instagram. Like my parents are on Facebook. Like you wouldn't see somebody like even our our age on Facebook. Like it's Yeah, it's just it's a it's a time capsule for me. Like I just go sometimes and laugh at the things I used to think were worthy of sharing to anyone. It's like do you, when do you think the moment will be that we suddenly look at Gen Zers and think, oh my God, we're really old? I, I, I still, I get that feeling sometimes now. Like I'm, I'm aware I'm probably like chuggy as hell. What, what is technically Gen Z? What, what's the cutoff age? I think it's at 24. I think. 24. Maybe 24. Oh, wait, I'm in it? Yeah, you're Gen Z. He's keeping you relevant. <laughs> I think everybody should go to a therapist though. I like agree. it's a true statement. Like I, I a hundred percent, like anybody that says they have nothing to talk about is lying is lying like truth i actually i went on, i went on a date with someone and he was like oh i went i've been going to like, all my friends are starting therapy so i just thought i may as well give it a go and like, i went to one and i just was like, i don't i don't really have anything to talk about i don't think i really need this and i was like you are the exact kind of person you need <laughs> if, if you think you don't need it you probably need it and that's that's like the craziest that, that's the craziest part about it and then you have the people that stop going when things get good it's the time to really hit the gas and like keep it going. Like, I mean, it's just. I wish a therapist did a podcast where they had a guest that was an actual patient, a first time patient, undisclosed, anonymous, and they sh- they went through a therapy session and maybe even they progressed episode by episode. Yeah. Esther Perel does couples therapy podcasts like that, um, where she, you know, it's like real couples and it's like a therapy session with her. Um, but yeah, I'd love to see some individual ones. I, I think like I. Like therapy is interesting. I think even in the last five years has undergone such a shift. I think that I, I love the fact that we're so much more open about talking about mental health. Like I think finding a good therapist is like, it's, it is again, like it's matchmaking, like finding someone who is really right for you. And I, I just haven't found someone. I, I don't know how, if you had to go through many to find the right one. Yeah, that's the issue. The, the current system that's built out right now is very difficult. It's very um, scary to... One, it's tedious, but it's also scary. So how do you find a therapist, first of all? I don't know. And then let's say you go to a couple offices. Well, then, oh, shit, which one accepts my insurance if they even do? And if I'm priced out because it's $100 a session, well, guess what? I'm like the rest of America and I can't afford therapy. It's a luxury. Too fucking bad. Back to regular life. And maybe my doctor can give me some medication and maybe that'll help. It's just just such a like clear 
you know, obviously answer is, is make, making healthcare affordable to people. And especially like, I think obviously like, I feel like cause physical health is so much, it manifests and it's like very clear to see, but I think mental health, obviously it's becoming far more, you know, I think awareness is like obviously heightened, but we don't take the steps to care and, and provide in the way that we should as society. Like I, I would love, I mean, there's like the same, exactly the same issue you're describing. It's like you, how do you find the right one? And it's like really hard because you do this big data download with someone, you know, like you, tr- you and then you feel invested because you've, you've already told them everything. And it's just like having to then find another one. And yeah, it is. And it, like you said, it's a privilege, like to even be able to afford and even to have health insurance to be able to afford it. Like, it's just. Yeah, like what one of the ways I've found is I just listen to loads of podcasts um, with therapists, and like I, you know, I, that's kind of I feel like that's how I get therapy because there, there's like particular like psychologists who I love, and I just like read their books and listen to their podcasts, and you know, like there's ways of doing it in an affordable way until you can actually get a therapist. But I'm yeah, I'm such an advocate for it, and I think that um, you know, like being self-aware and like, it's funny because I think that now it's shifted so much that like I've seen I see on people's hinge profiles they'll say like they talk about therapy like especially men I feel like they they, they advertise that they're in therapy because they I know think that that's it's a ploy like, to get girls yeah but they know it's okay. attractive to women to know that they're like they're doing some some like self-reflection and they're aware Andrew uh Andrew Solomon who has, has a few TED talks is a great one to listen to um just talk about the benefits of therapy and basically he talks from the start about how he went from not even be, not even being able to get out of bed in the morning um until where he is now and saying that it's part of the journey and just being able to admit it's just like so many people can't even get past that because they don't even see it as an issue um but like if you have time like definitely check out his ted talks andrew solomon there's there's another one uh, a woman who i love called laurie gottlieb who wrote this book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And it's just such a compelling case for if people who don't believe in therapy or don't really understand the value of therapy. It just follows the lives of kind of five of her patients and also her, you know, who she's going through her own like issues and, and going through her own therapy. And it's just incredible, like the transformative journey for each of these patients and like the stuff you discover. And a lot of them are very reluctant people. They don't really want to be in therapy and they're like very resistant to it but it's it's so moving and um I think they're turning it into a tv show actually but I I've recommended it to so many people it made me cry like it's just it's an amazing book and I feel like I wish I could get everyone to read it to realize why therapy is important it doesn't mean that you're a broken person or there's something wrong with you it's just that there's so many subconscious things that you know that have happened to us in our lives that we don't know why we behave the way we do and that we're like products of our environment and like the things that you know that these forces that are kind of invisible and um yeah I think having someone to help you unpick that and see patterns is so valuable now is is there a big emphasis on mental health in the UK as there is in the US because where me and Andrew are from I'm from Poland Andrew's from Italy my parents and his parents don't know what a therapist no, it's like is. Stiff up a lip kind they of will not speak to a therapist because they think it's the police. I think I think it's a similar, a very similar attitude where I think it's almost like admitting weakness to say that you need therapy, and it's like a kind of a taboo. Like I, I at least feel I felt that it was like a taboo subject, and you're kind of there's something wrong with you if you need to go to therapy, and that's why you go to therapy. But I would say our generation, we talk a lot more openly about it. But I was def- I moved here five years ago and I, I don't know if you felt this way like or have noticed this difference that people just talk so much more openly about their therapists. And it's like, it's almost like they're just like a, a fixture in their life. You know that, you know, there's like the Instagram account, my therapist says. And it's just like, you know, it's, it's like a play on the fact that people are always like, oh, my therapist said this. And, you know, they just throw in these nuggets of wisdom that they got from their therapist. And I remember being quite surprised by that when I first arrived and just thinking, wow, like people are just incredibly open here. And I think it's one of my favorite things about Americans and America is just like the willingness to talk about these kind of things. Um, and, you know, I'm probably not up to date on the UK because I haven't been there for five years, but I would say that it's getting there. But I 100% like my parents are the same as yours. I think it's a very European. It's a very European mentality to be closed off because at least I know in Southern Europe, at least like anything you say, you represent your family. So it's like whenever you speak, you're not just speaking for yourself. Like you're speaking on behalf of like 
40 or so people that you represent on like a larger scale. So like anytime you speak, you like really think about what you're about to say next. Cause you're like, okay, I'm going to get talked to later about this one. <laughs> I know. I remember I was on a podcast once and I was like very open and my mum listened and she was like, oh yeah, you were, you, you were very honest. And I was like, well, what else? It's like I a nice and backhanded compliment you can receive. Like, <laughs> oh, like you were really yourself. Like, Oh, what does that mean? Like if she if she was curating if she was curating an Instagram, I mean it would just be like, you know, all the like sparkly things in life. Whereas yeah, I think like, it goes back to this idea that we have a duty to try and be honest if we can. And I think that, you know, I there's nothing worse than someone just being like, you know, how are you? Good. You yeah, I'm good. And like I just think that it it's nice to sometimes just be real and just like tell people actually how you are. I have that exact conversation with the guy that works the front lobby in my office building. Hey, how you doing today? Good. You? Yeah. Great. And you know what though? That that's the way I want. <laughs> yeah, it's because it's like how much do you give? I, I think I I I think I once read so, like something about this because sometimes that kind of small talk is just it's a little painful and I always feel a bit disingenuous when I engage in it. And sometimes I'm like, could I just give them one little detail that would humanize me and make me just a bit more real to them? But then it's like, where, where do you draw the line? Do you tell them about your entire weekend or? A lot of the times it backfires. You you go that one day and they go, actually, I'm not fine. And then they start speaking and you have to be <laughs> somewhere. It's like, oh. And then he's your new therapist. Yeah. It was like, well, now I tell you everything. Because it's so expensive. That's where you find your therapist. <laughs> yeah. And I always feel like, do you, do you ever feel that with friends? Like, I'm aware that I don't want to abuse friends and treat them like therapists, but sometimes, sometimes like, they are very good and listening and they know you really well. From a guy's perspective, whenever you have a friend that goes through a really tough breakup, you're a therapist. But are you a therapist or are you a hype man? Like, are you like, no, no, it's not you, it's them, it's... I've had friends that I haven't heard from from years that want to hang out with me for a weekend because they went through a breakup, but I know it. I, I know what's then going on. You must on. be a good listener then, and obviously... And know, that's what it ends advice. up being. That's yeah. what it ends up being. Do you, do, you, do you find yourself being patient in those situations? Yeah. Yeah, because you, you hear something that you might have not experienced before. Now, subconsciously, if I listen, he'll like me more. <laughs> you know, but that that's true. There's a, there's a great book that I always give everyone as a gift. It's called... um. How to make friends and influence people and influence people. Yeah. yeah. And it, as sick as that book is from a perspective, like a sociopath <laughs> perspective, it, it, it's real. I mean, if I listen to you speak for an hour, you'll like me more just because I nodded my head and yeah. I said, yeah, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It, this reminds me of, um, you know, Russell Brand, the like, I feel like he's like pretty controversial British comedian. He, you know, he was like a known sex addict and like, could pick up any woman and he basically said you know in an interview the way I do it is like you just literally singularly focus in on a woman and you just listen to them talk and you acknowledge them <laughs> and you ask questions and you are just very interested and make them feel like they're the only person in the room it's it's very obvious but unfortunately a lot of people do not have the ability to like actually just listen and ask questions and be genuinely engaged yeah they're on the other yeah, end they're because they love because they... then they like being interviewed so they just like talk about themselves <laughs> And I don't, I don't know what it is. Is it, it, are they just that simple? I don't know. I've had this, like I, 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 a lot, like I find it infuriating that, you know, I can go on a date with someone and I could literally have come from the moon and they will not know a thing about me. I'm like, I come away knowing their like biography and I'm like, how do they not know? And, and someone's just like, how do they not have the innate curiosity to like be sat across someone they've never met or seen before and not want to know? I, I, I guess it's obviously we're all very different as humans, but it, it sometimes just feels incredibly insulting. To me, it's like respect too. Like if you're if you're going to spend 30 minutes talking about yourself, even if you don't care, give that underhand toss and ask them something about themselves or at least try to bridge it. Because nobody, no, like even for my friends, like I am... I've never been in a relationship in my life, but I am the relationship expert for both my friend groups on the on the male side and the female side. I'm the go-to like therapist and advice giver. Um, and they always say, what would you do? As if like the advice I'm about to give comes from like some deeply rooted like expertise I've had from learning over the years. I said people need to like, I guess, and that's the thing too, even with our society. And again, that comes back to social media and that, that round table. Like it's so easy to talk to somebody through a phone, through an app. But then when you're there in front of that person, like people can't have conversation, let alone make eye contact. That's the biggest one. 
I can't tell you how many people can't even look at somebody in the eyes and hold a conversation. It's one of my favorite subjects. Like I love breaking the fourth wall on a date and just like asking people about bad date stories. And a lot of them tell me about times they're just sat opposite someone and they can't even hold any eye contact and don't ask any questions. And they're just like very like timid and kind of, and yeah, I guess it's like, I feel like that is my parents' generation's perception of our generation, unfortunately, is like that we're always on our phones and that we're not very like sociable but I, I, I think like the art of conversation, like in my mind, I don't think it's lost. I just think that, I don't know. I think like in, I guess like my experience of these new conversations is like a lot of the time, like I was saying, it's like it's dates. And I think in those situations, it's a bit charged because someone is also like, sh- they're kind of showing off, aren't they? And they're like, they might be nervous. Yeah. There are things that may influence their behavior. It's just, I don't know. How do you, how do you date? Like, do you just use the apps too? I don't date. I haven't dated in like two years. I, I came to the point where I was like, I need to get my life yeah. in order. One time, you know Joe's Pizza? Yeah. Okay, great pizza. Yeah, there's one, there's one in West Village and one in Williamsburg. Best one is by NYU. It's oh, yeah. East yeah. 14th Street. Set up a date. I went to the wrong Joe's Pizza. Oh, no. So that's when I knew. I was like, okay, I'm mentally, I'm not there. <laughs> it's just something I'm reckoning with at the moment. I'm like, I have lost all motivation. I hate doing it. But I know I also need to do it. If I can chime in with my zero expertise. Yeah, well, let's get the relationship guru on this. I, I think it's important, though, to do it even if you're not ready. Because I think you have to go through the bad date. So when you finally get that good date you know how to act and you don't fumble the ball on the on the good date. I've ca- I didn't really date until I moved to New York. I just it wasn't a priority for me and like I just didn't bother trying. And then I got to here and I was like 28 and I was like, well, I better start trying. And since I've been here, I've been on 81 first dates, which I think is like an obscene number. Well as a girl you get a lot of dates proposed. I- yeah, I don't know if it's just, yeah, I mean, I think New York is just like a very actionable place, like easy to swipe, easy to get dates. And it's just, but it's, but it's just actually, demor- I just can't do it anymore. But what is a date? Like, is it just like grabbing a drink and then 20 minutes later going your own ways? Or is it dinner too? I think, yeah, mainly drinks, Mainly drink. But like, yeah, a variety of things. And like, it's just, I, it's just, I think I... It just takes a lot of energy out of you to like, and I, to keep, you know, meeting new people. And like, most often it's terrible or not, it's very lackluster. And it's very disappointing. I, the thing that I find so disconcerting about dating is that you can have two very different experiences at the same night. So you could think it went really well. And then the other person could be sitting across from you being like, God, oh, I can't wait to get out of this. Well, it's a stranger. It really yeah. is. That's where I think the online dating thing goes wrong. You're a stranger who always has the option to go back on that app and find someone yeah. new. Yeah, it's, it's the paradox of choice thing is like the thing that I think is killing dating. And I think that's like one of my like extreme interests is like I read so much about um, about dating and like psychology. And I think that, have you ever read Alan de Botton? Um, he wrote this book called The Course of Love. And it he ultimately, I think the argument is, is that, no relationship I mean it's obvious is is perfect and it actually is just what you're willing to put in the work to and you know it's like you just you find and I think everyone thinks they're going to find something better and there's this like elusive perfect person but actually if you find someone who you really align with and your values align and you enjoy their company you have to both be prepared to put in the work and it's going to be hard and I, I just kind of sense that there's an endless cycle of people in a city like New York and people apparently date like six people at once and you know, I feel like you're just one of many people and you're just like a, a name in someone's phone. And it, it's just like incredibly impersonal. And it's it can really knock your self-esteem when you take it too personally. <laughs> I just I just think that like a lot of like my friends and I've talked to people about it and everyone has like a template, you know, like a really nice text they send that just like tells them. It, I'm not joking. It's like a copy and paste thing where you're just like, you know like some kind of version of it and you just it's like a really sweet thing it's just like yeah I had a great time you're great just don't feel the romantic spark or whatever it is that elusive spark and but at least there's closure that is the nice part and again the guru from the corner uh like (laughs) like I come from a family that had like almost all my grandparents and a few others all had arranged marriages and like they're all 100% of them are all still together and I think it's because it goes back to the mentality. You're not going to find the perfect person. Uh, I'm also not advocating for arranged marriages. I'll make that clear too. But uh, <laughs> you're not going to find the perfect person. But like I, when I look at my grandparents and I talk to them, it's that, I guess it's that idea that 
like you make it work because you want to make it work and you find if as long as they're a decent person you can find something you love hopefully about each person you come across uh, across in in life yeah because it because ultimately like you like so much of love is like obviously loving all the amazing qualities but it's also the bad qualities as well and I think like persisting through something and not being like dazzled by all the other options and choices and like they obviously didn't have other choices so they did have to persist and commit and I think that analogy is like the same even for jobs you know like my first job in America I was like stuck on a visa for three years and a job that I didn't really love but I had to persist through it because I had no other way and I I learned about myself and learned things in it and I think it's just you know yeah like I think that we could all take a lesson in dating from in that sense it, there's another good book is Aziz Ansari's book. Um, uh, I think it's like, is it Modern Romance? I think have you got that? And he he just talks about you know the same thing where like you know you used to probably just marry someone who lived within a mile of, your, of where you lived, and now we could date someone in Australia. You know, it's the complete ridiculous choice. But I think I I think I, like I'm similar to you, Patrick, and that I have so much that I want to do and achieve, and I and I, and it's hard to imagine being in a situation where I'm suddenly have a child on the way like as much as I like aspire to those things it's also like I, I I'm beginning to accept that if that doesn't happen for me it's fine and I think accepting being on your own and being good on your own is a really great thing and um I think it's I think it's far more attractive to have someone who has a really rich life and doesn't need to be codependent on anyone well said Katie where, how can people learn more about you the things you do the podcast you yeah, have. Yeah, I mean, I um, am at Katie Philo on Instagram, and I have a website, katiephilo.com. It's I'm I do think I'm a bit of a multi hyphenate, and I you know make have make two podcasts. I do social media at Pitchfork. Um, I have many things. I'm like secretly want to write a book, which I'm starting to do. Like just that's like my mistress thing at the moment, and. Um, I also want to write a screenplay. Like I just have many things I want to do, but I think that my podcast, When I Grow Up, is something I'm proud of because it's something that I needed at that time, which was talking to people in many different careers about how they, there's just the twists and turns because I felt very directionless at that time. And I just hope that other people find it soothing because even if it looks like everyone has their shit figured out, I kind of can assure you that they don't. <laughs> Well, thanks for coming on, Katie. We really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you so much for the conversation. And thank you for all the work that you do on um, Social Club as well. It's it's Every time I see you on my feed, I, it's like a pick-me-up. And I appreciate everything that you do. 